Hi, this is Ray Bertoldi, and you're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Yes. Afternoon, Senator. My name is Thomas. I'm a first year at the Policy School. My question is about and, the author. And also in the service. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, but I was wondering about uh, the authorization for use of military force yeah. that all of our troops around the world who are deployed right now are under the authority of this AUMF that was passed after 9-11. Mm -hmm. I was wondering why it has been so hard for a new AUMF to be passed. Because no politician wants to go on the record voting to authorize the use of military force in case something bad happens and then they're held accountable for having voted yes or no, such as on the Iraq war. Um, it's cowardly. We need to do our jobs. We need to have a discussion on the authorization for use of military force. We are 17 and a half years into the war in Afghanistan. That war was authorized shortly after September 11, 2001, and has not been re-examined by Congress since then. To me, that is the biggest fundamental failure of our American democracy since South Carolina seceded from the Union. What we have now since 9-11 is a recognized threat by our intelligence community that is worldwide and nobody wears a uniform. So how do you square that with an authorization of use of military force? I mean, if this were simple, uh, it would have been updated by now. The reason it hasn't been updated by now is nobody can figure out how to do it. What is disturbing to us is, are our elected representatives taking their oversight of the military seriously? I don't know if the mass of Americans have ever taken that responsibility seriously, but once upon a time our Congress people did. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. Today we're bringing you an interview we did with Dr. Charles A. Stevenson about congressional oversight of the military. Dr. Stevenson is a professor of American foreign policy at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. And prior to that, he was a professor at the National War College. Before teaching, Dr. Stevenson served for over 20 years as a Senate staffer, working on foreign affairs and defense policy. He has written several books on the subject, including Congress at War, The Politics of Conflict Since 1789. This interview will go into more depth on topics we've covered in previous episodes, like congressional oversight of military spending and the authorization for use of military force. The AUMF is of particular interest to a lot of people right now, and it's come up several times in the last few episodes. We even recently got to ask Senator Tammy Duckworth about it at a public event here at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, as you heard in the opening clip. But first, we talked about the history of the relationship between Congress and the military. And sorry if the audio quality is spotty here and there, we had some technical difficulties while recording. But without further delay, here's the interview. Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Happy to do it. So we've had a lot of guests on our podcast already make comments about the role of Congress in oversight of the military and specifically how the trend of that relationship over time has been such that the that Congress has gradually given up a lot of the authority that it used to exercise over the military. We're wondering if you agree with that analysis, and if so, or if not, uh, what do you make of it? Well, I agree that Congress has largely abdicated its war power, which is very important. It hasn't abdicated its micromanagement of the Defense Department, though, 
because it does have those constitutional rights to raise and support an army, provide and maintain a navy, set rules for the forces, and that it continues to do. In fact, it's been very generous. Congress is both a, a sponsor and a sometime critic of the military. And at different points in time with different news issues being current, it switches or it seems to switch to do more one than the other. And so what do you make of, of the relationship today then? Today, I think Congress is enormously supportive of most things that the U.S. military does. It's giving very generous pay increases to people in uniform. And this administration is wants to deny them to people who don't wear uniforms but work in the, in the federal government. I think that's wrong. But the Congress has always been willing, so even before the 9-11 attacks, to give the military extra pay raises in the year that it didn't do the same for civilian uh, authorities in the government. Pay raises aside, I think there's a lot of criticism regarding how the military budgeting process works. So we spoke with Senator McCaskill uh, a while ago, and she spoke about how, you know, with projects like the F-35, um, the military industrial complex, these companies um, are placing the building structures in like 25 different states. So they always have the support of Congress around that. So do you agree that with pay raises aside, there is some dysfunction in regard to how military budgeting works? Well, the, the, the big problem with military budgeting is the problem with civilian budgeting as well. We have a congressional dysfunction on passing an annual budget on time. And that's a fight because mostly Republicans want to remove the caps that Congress has put in ever since 1990 on both domestic and, for, and military spending, wants to remove them only for the military. And Democrats and others say, well, no, we've got to lift caps for both. And, and that's been the basic fight. Now, what, what the Senator McCastle said about contractors is true. Uh, I can't think of any major weapons program, certainly no aircraft program in the last 40 years that hasn't had subcontracts in over 40 states. That's the way the military industrial complex thinks, works, and profits. So we asked the same question to Senator McCaskill, too, but do you think that there are policy steps that need to be taken to remediate that? Or is that just uh, an accepted fact of the way the way it is? I don't think you can change the parochialism of members of Congress that's built into our constitutional system. Every member of Congress represents a piece of territory and therefore the voters within that territory. And if they don't take care of those voters, they get voted out. So you can't avoid parochialism. What you can do is structure debates and consideration of military measures, including contracting, weapons procurement, so that the other sides get heard, the cost-effectiveness side, the military judgment on the need for things, those kinds of factors have to be part of the debate. And if they are, then I'm willing to trust the constitutional officers to sort out the disagreements. So looking back again, kind of at the history of congressional oversight, and you said that it's clear that Congress has abdicated a lot of its war powers. Do you see a time in our history that was like a turning point for that, where that where that kind of happened? 
Was there a golden age? I, offhand, I can't think of one. The very first investigation that Congress uh, held, 1792, was of a failed military uh, intervention in, again, in the Northwest Territory by General Sinclair. Uh, Congress always looks into problems, to uh, failures. During the uh, War of 1812, they had extensive hearings. During the Civil War, there was the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which actually, I think, behaved pretty well, though President Lincoln didn't like how many questions it asked. But they met in secret, and they delayed their reports for many months, so it didn't uh, jeopardize ongoing military operations. But they still looked closely at how things were happening. Same thing for uh, the, Mex the uh, Spanish-American War. Congress discovered what the poor provisioning of troops. They called it embalmed beef. Uh, and they looked into the, the whole uh, uh, furnishing of troops. You know, they went to Cuba wearing woolen, woolen uniforms, all that kind of stuff. Congress has played a useful role in most of our wars. It certainly didn't World War II, too. But where it's, and it continues to investigate problems and, and, and failures, uh, Congress likes short, successful wars. And when, whenever a conflict becomes prolonged or appears to be unsuccessful, they get all upset. Trouble is, we face a couple of forever wars right now, and Congress seems unwilling to say, stay in, go strong, get out, or what? In other words, they are abdicating what should be their role to say, what should we do about these, uh, these major operations? On that note about forever wars, um, so Senator McCaskill has said that the authorization for the use of military force is just too complicated to renegotiate it correctly. But on the other hand, people like Senator Duckworth have said that it's cowardly um, for Congress, for members of Congress to not step up and renegotiate it. Why do you think, as an observer, it has not been renegotiated? Well, it hasn't because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, it is very difficult. How, how do we want to craft our involvement in some of these messy conflicts, uh, Syria. Are, are we with, are we with the Kurds, but not, not Assad? We're against ISIS. Where do we want? You know, how do we sort out all of those cross pressures that, that uh, we we see uh, there? That that's complicated. But the deeper reason is that uh, congressmen are now risk averse. Uh, you don't remember it, but I do, that several of the uh, contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1992 were ruled unacceptable because they had opposed the Gulf War, which was short and successful. Uh, in fact, none of the several, 47 Democrats voted against going into the Gulf War because Senator Nunn of Georgia, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, said it, it was too risky, it wasn't properly planned. Okay, 2008, the flip happened when a lot of folks were denied the chance to uh, challenge Barack Obama. He won. He had opposed the Iraq war, and they, in a moment of caution, I suppose, had all supported going into Iraq. So members of Congress learned, okay, they had, people have been hurt in the past by their votes on war, so we better not take any more. And what? I guess I, returning to that, 
question of is there a policy solution to that? Is there, or is it just like the parochial issue that it's that's just the nature of the system? Well, I think they should say to. I think they sh- Congress should approve our involvement against ISIS. Should approve our uh, perhaps. Appro- I don't know. I, I'm undecided on him. They should at least vote how much, how long, how far. Congress historically has set limits in the size, the duration, the types of forces being sent abroad. I think they should re-examine those issues for Yemen, for Syria, and for any Venezuela, if the administration wants to go there. You know, they should decide those questions. And, and they're not easy. But, you know, the, another trouble with the Congress and what my solution would be for doing things different is what Senator McCain talked about in his final major public speech, regular order. That's what his Armed Services Committee does every year. They pass a bill that gets signed by the president every year since 1961. And they do it, they they, they do it because they feel they have to, and therefore they make compromises to be sure the bill gets passed. And if it's vetoed, gets amended slightly, so it'll be signed. That's the regular order. Uh, Too often nowadays, members of Congress avoid difficult votes They punt the issues, and therefore nothing gets decided. If they would spend more time voting instead of campaigning and sorting out and not being so afraid that a single vote they make is going to ruin their career, well, tough. Their job is to make those decisions. And that's what I think the greatest reform is if more people would agree to follow the regular order and follow the model that the Armed Services Committees have set for over 50 years. Supposing that it just never gets renegotiated, that Congress members uh, remain too afraid of votes or, you know, risk, and it never, never, another one never gets passed or renewed. Um, What does that mean for the future of American foreign policy? Well, (laughs) it means we are uh, adding another layer of dysfunction on some of the ones we already have and another problem, I think would be very bad. Uh, That may well be the most likely outcome, uh, but it's certainly not one that I would uh, recommend. I think we've got to get our act together in a whole range of international policy issues. We've been ducking Uh, World Trade Organization reform, we've been ducking IMF reform, we've been ducking uh, maybe changes in the way the UN system works. We've been ducking a lot. Uh, By the way, Congress has also ducked the foreign aid program. We have not had a major overhaul of the underlying foreign aid law since 1986. Congress passes this defense authorization every year. The last time they did it for foreign aid was 1986. And so we have a lot of underbrush that messes up our ability to conduct foreign aid, foreign economic policy. So there's a lot we have to do. You've already you've mentioned a couple times the imbalance that you see in like conceptions of service where like people hold military service in such high regard. Um, that the there is popular demand for a NDAA to be passed every year. If that didn't happen, there would be problems for members of Congress. Whereas with these other government agencies and public servants, that 
isn't really the case. Is that kind of well? What... In fact, the only legal problem that would occur if a defense authorization bill were not enacted is that you couldn't change the level of military compensation higher than the inflation rate. That's all. Uh, but in fact, the, the, the stakeholders, the folks on the committees of jurisdiction say, we've got to do a bill and they do a bill. And the leadership says, yes, we've got to spend the time to do it. Leadership doesn't want a foreign aid bill to take up two weeks of congressional time. And that's part of the problem that the, the, the Congress can't restrain itself from offering poison pill amendments on God knows what. Uh, if it's a foreign aid bill, because who cares if it passes or not? That's that mentality, I think, is the real explanation for the problem there. Uh, I want to turn really quickly to what we were just talking about in regard to how a lot of Congress members of Congress are, are worrying about the effect of one vote and how that's going to affect their future elections and future campaigns. I think it would also help if the American public could better hold their members of Congress to task. And if they're more educated about issues like the military and defense policy, they'd do a better job at holding their members of Congress to task. Uh, do you think Congress has any role in educating the American public about the military? Oh, sure. And I think Congress should use the kinds of regular order debates that we have every year on, on, armed serv on DOD, on armed services matters, uh, to do that. Uh, I, I think they have. Uh, Senator McCaskill uh, described her work on uh, sexual harassment policies. I thought that was very excellent where she was trying to get information, discussing with all of the potential stakeholders, you know, what are the facts and what's the best way to respond to it? Whether the media pays attention to some of these lower profile investigations and issues is a, is a different matter. It's much easier for the, the, the media to pay attention to casualties and problems than to uh, slower, sensible reform. So that congressional oversight by its very nature is a way to educate the public about the military. Yes. Okay. Yes. So one thing that we've seen kind of in recent years is an interaction between things and missions even that are classified as sensitive. And, you know, there was the attack in Niger that happened. Um, last year and there were members of the Senate Intelligence Committee who came and said they didn't even know we had troops in Niger right and so there's there's been things that have been like kept out of the public knowledge for you know whatever national security reasons on the other hand there's the the issues of oversight and transparency and accountability what do you kind of make of that interaction well, I, guess? The, the, I, I have some personal background in this whole issue because I I helped write the law, which is basically still on the books, that says the CIA cannot conduct covert actions unless the president personally approves and the Congress is notified. That, I think, is the template, the, the, the good template for offensive cyber operations, for, for lethal drone strikes, as well as the kinds of things that the the missions that you're talking about that are sensitive, not the, the train and assist that's done by the Defense Department under Title 10, but these military, these clandestine operations that are done under Title 50, where the intelligence community's rules are set. So uh, I, I guess Niger was was not a covert operation. It was, a, it was an open one, and people should have just known and been careful about that. 
But if it's if it if sensitive operations are being conducted, I think you should follow the, the model called the Hughes Ryan Act that I was involved in that I think has worked in, in for the last uh, several decades. Chicago, the Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. Turning toward the future of what congressional oversight looks like, do you think it's possible for Congress to regain that authority that has ceded? Well, it has to in a wide range. We've discovered recently that the, uh, you know, the Congress ceded authority in '76 on national emergencies, and President Trump is using that law, uh, just as he used earlier provisions in the trade laws to impose sanctions that uh, appear questionable under the the normal reading of what that law was supposed to allow. So Congress has given over the years a lot of power without worrying about it. I think there's a sense now, certainly in the trade area already, uh, legislation is moving that might limit the president's uh, authority there. On military operations, I don't, I, I think the Congress is ready to be, to impose limits. After all, the War Powers Act was an effort to avoid another Vietnam. And it succeeded. We haven't had another Vietnam in the sense that we haven't had any prolonged major military operation that wasn't approved by Congress until we got into the Arab Spring, the ISIS, uh, Yemen issue. This is the first time that the war power system hasn't worked. And that's because people have stretched the definitions under the 2001 AUMF. But it, it's, it should be there. It should work and future op- it should work for future operations. So I think Congress is ready to hold future actions accountable. They, they don't seem to be ready to sort out what we should do in the ones that are current. What do you think a future president needs to do to restore this balance? Well, Presidents have to understand the military and respect the military. Military has a great can-do spirit, but they also have a huge budget, which means everybody says, well, if we have a problem, let's use the, the military screwdriver rather than any other tool. Well, military hammer, I guess is a better metaphor. Use the military because we've got it. They're capable. They get things done. Uh, and l- we don't have enough money elsewhere. We don't have enough capability in the civilian sector, et cetera. That's a shame. They've got to rebalance our toolkit. We shouldn't be giving the military jobs that civilians should be doing, especially a lot of the State Department, USAID civilians. In 2015, you wrote this chapter titled Congress and New Ways of War, in which you outline um, how Congress and the military have this partnership with supporting new technologies and new innovations. Right. What are your hopes for the future in regards to that partnership? Well, I think one of the historical facts is that when Congress has wanted to be sure we had a certain kind of military technology or capability, they created a new entity to do it. They recognize that the existing 
armed forces, the existing bureaucracies would protect themselves and resist innovation. As I mentioned in that chapter, uh, the, the army, which controlled aviation until 1947, the U.S. Army resisted even attempting to look at heavier-than-air aircraft. The Wright brothers said, test our aircraft. It's a great thing. They resisted that until Senator Henry Cabot Lodge forced them to at least try out the Wright brothers' planes. Okay, Congress has often been the sponsor of the Mavericks with new technology, and I think Congress, that's why Congress created the Special Operations Command. Uh, that's why Congress is pushing for a stronger cyber command. I, I, I think that's a natural thing, and I'm glad that it's there because Congress often can identify things to do that the existing military resist because they know how to do their job well. They don't want anybody to mess with it. So do you then advocate for Congress legislatively setting up a sixth branch of the military in charge of space operations? Uh, I don't like that from what I've heard about it because it looks like too much duplication rather than specialization. Uh, I think the Air Force has done a pretty good job handling space, uh, and I, I don't see offhand a, a reason uh, other than you know helping the the uniform manufacturers have a new line uh, to create a separate force. Recently, we saw the somewhat dramatic resignation of Secretary Mattis from his post as Secretary of Defense. And the job of Secretary of Defense is something that you've written about extensively. What did you make of that sequence of events? Um, his, his installation as Secretary of Defense as a retired general and his ensuing resignation. I agreed that the existing law forbidding such a person, unless they've been out of uniform for at least seven years, is a good law. I accepted Mattis appeared to be, especially in the Trump administration, a kind of once a generation exception that seemed acceptable. And I was disappointed by his performance in several regards. Uh, you know, I hoped he would be more civilian. I'm told he basically got rid of the civilians in the front office of the secretary's retinue and replaced it with folks from his previous military command. He should have been a civilian. He should have bent over backwards to deal with civilians as a civilian, and not just to replicate his military success and and, de and defer, devolve power to military subordinates. He should have tried to devolve power to civilian subordinates, and I don't think he did that well enough. And what effect did that have, or is going to have, on civil military relations? Well. It means we still have unresolved tensions, and I do believe, with Peter Fever of Duke, that civilian our system builds in civilian control, but it has to be carefully managed. The civilians need to be respectful and understanding of the military, but the military needs to accept, as Fever says, civilians have a right to be wrong. Uh, that the, the, they don't have to accept all military advice; they should listen to. It. They should weigh it, but the military should not have a veto over uh, civilian policy choices, as I think uh, is often the case in our country. So we're here at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and we have a lot of classmates 
who are going to go into careers that have nothing to do with the military or national security, but they still might be influential someday at the federal level or the state level or the municipal level in policymaking. What do you think they should know about the military and national security policymaking? Uh, well, they should get to know individuals who are in uniform if they have opportunities. And usually the military is pretty good about providing visits to military installations. You know, I've been on a carrier. I've, I've been uh, at a live fire exercise at Fort Of course, I was a Hill staffer. That made it easier. But they should look for opportunities to get behind the facade of the media and especially the movies. Uh, which pro pro project military uh, members and military operations in too glossy and unrealistic a way. Okay, they, they should recognize they have ignorance and therefore they should seek to fill it. Uh, the same way they would about any uh, big public policy issue or a foreign country that we have important relations with, they should seek out ways to do that and use folks like you as venues for broadening their understanding. And, and you, in later life as a commanding officer somewhere, should invite civil society to you know, come aboard or in other ways engage with your units so they can understand them better. Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you time. and keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You For Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haziano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our publisher is David Rabon. Special thanks to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official position of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnishan. See you next time. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening.